Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. Now, today's topic is a little bit of a mix of things, highlighted by an emerging field in physics called soft matter physics. And just so you don't have to hear me fumble through cookie cutter definitions, we brought on a guest star that focuses on soft matter research. We'll dive into the basics of soft matter, some interesting applications, and stuff I just don't want to spoil. But to round out the last two segments, our guests and I will talk about the PhD track, as well as the importance of work-life balance, especially in the STEM fields. So without further ado, please meet our guest, Michelle Wang. Michelle is a singer-songwriter that is currently pursuing a PhD in physics while focusing on soft matter research at Emory University. She has been doing research in experimental soft matter physics since her freshman year at the University of San Diego in 2017 and published a first author scientific journal article on soft matter in 2019 with various talks and poster presentations to follow. But besides physics, Michelle puts a lot of work into her music. She started producing singles at the age of 16, but has been writing, singing, and playing music for practically her whole life. Her music identifies as acoustic pop, folk, and R&B. So please take a second and check out some of her music on Spotify. Her music is linked on our website, or just look up Michelle Wang using the Spotify's search tool. So now that you've been introduced to the topic of the show and my good friend Michelle, we're going to head into our first commercial break. But before we do so, I wanted to take another quick second and just promote our newsletter. So the Monday before each episode, we will email you facts about the episode coming and information that wasn't really covered, so bonus content. And then we'll give spoilers to what the following episode will be. But most importantly, we want you to give us a reply email with a question that could possibly be answered by our next or upcoming guest star. So if you want to have your questions answered and stay in tune with the podcast, head to our website under the newsletter tab and sign up today. We look forward to adding you to our community of curious people. And with that, here's our first commercial and enjoy the show. Okay, that's our signal. So, Michelle, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm living the dream, except I just came back from Alaska, so I'm still feeling hungover from the trip, but happy to be back and podcasting. I took 17 days off from this. It was very nice. We'll just say. I'm so jealous. So good. So uh, in nerd news, right, we have some big news coming Mm -hmm. from the James Webb Space Telescope. I'm going to pull up the images, but like, have you seen the images? Yeah, yeah. I actually saw a live stream both on Monday and today on Tuesday. And they're, they're amazing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, let me pull this up. Let me go to the first one. This was the first one on uh, Smacks. I'm calling it Smacks. It's S-M-A-C-S uh, 0723. I was I did a, a quick TikTok video on this last night because I was so <laughs> hype about it. Yeah, I was so excited to see the transformation between Hubble's imagery yeah. here and then to the JWST. It, it's mm-hmm. it's gorgeous. Just the level exactly. of of accuracy just increase from gaining more of the spectrum. But um yeah. And this is like the first, this is the beginning. So it makes me really pumped up to see what's coming next because this is like a great start. And in such little amount of time that since the time they launched JWST to right now, it's like super short amount of time to process the images, taking those images. It's so impressive. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I haven't been following it too much, but uh, I've been like just awaiting for these images so I can take them. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to make a mini series and like mm -hmm. depict each image that will try to depict each public image that I can. Uh, I know that there's going to be a lot that comes out of here, mm -hmm. but uh, just for the layperson, what you're looking at is uh, an effect of gravitational lensing. So I, I don't know if you'll be able to see the pointer, but you know, if you're watching on YouTube, you might be able to. But right here, if you see this kind of circular effect, you'll see these smudged, faint red and orange kind of yellowish like uh, shapes. Those are galaxies that have been, uh, their light has been bent around a cluster of galaxies. And it's average about 13 and a half billion years, right, into the past that we're looking at right here. So fascinating. So you get some really sick things going on here this is literally just the side if you were to go outside and put a grain of sand in between your fingers and hold it up that's the same area in which jwst is imaging this the night sky and there's thousands of galaxies here and you get to see gravitational lensing at the same time in such a beautiful image like <laughs> it's just gorgeous it's ah. so excited to see this image like it came super unexpectedly too because we're like oh tuesday and then they're like well surprising like you know surprise drop <laughs> yeah yeah i didn't even know that this was coming out this soon i was on vacation and i was just unplugged from the world and mm -hmm. come back and i'm like "Ooh, there's actually good news yes <laughs> <laughs> we need that <laughs> For real, for real. But uh, just panning through here, this is uh, a nebula image. Look how, just look how gorgeous that is. And also, I guess just to briefly explain, if you're totally unfamiliar with the JWST, <laughs> is uh, they uh, added to the spectrum of what they're trying to look at. Right? We're not really looking at visible light now. With Hubble, it was visible light. Now we're looking at near infrared. So we're seeing a you know less energized uh, light coming towards us, something that's a lot farther away because uh, it's redshifted, right? The, the redshifting effect. If you want more explanation of that, go to our Let There Be Light episode. You can learn all about it. Uh, had a, a physicist on that talked all about light in the EM spectrum. It was fun. There's also the quintet. That's, wow. This, this, I'm actually seeing this in real time. I didn't get to catch these images yet. So I'm looking at this right now as uh, probably not the people that are watching this, but like I'm seeing this in real time and it's just, oh. they won't I, be on the wall. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. This ring nebula. So uh, my understanding is that the left image is what we're seeing now with the JWST and the right image was what came from Hubble. So you can see the complexity added uh, the information added to these images. Huh. Chef's kiss. The WASP-96b. Oh, yeah, yeah, because now we're looking at exoplanets, which is super exciting. And brief definition, exoplanets are just planets that are no longer like tied within a solar system. They've either been flung out for some gravitational, I don't know, collision maybe, reason, and they're now just kind of traveling in interstellar or intergalactic space. And yeah, so they're now able to, with better precision, look at these exoplanets and be able to understand what's going on in their atmospheres that they have. So not to bore you, I know um, this was really off topic, but obviously really interesting stuff. But what we're going to be talking about today is soft matter physics. So Michelle, you're the right person to be talking to about this. Happy to have you on. 
And I guess we'll just start out with the really mundane question, you know, for, for me and for and whoever's listening to this or watching this, what is soft matter physics? That's a great question. And I personally, I haven't heard about the term soft matter physics until I was in freshman year of college. So I guess not a lot of people are familiar with what soft matter physics and uh, what it entails, but basically we study squishy stuff. So it has a nickname of squishy physics and that covers everything from toothpaste, hair gel, your mac and cheese, all the food, um, to very high tech stuff. Like when it comes to tissue engineering, artificial cartilage, your contact lenses, uh, soft robotics, and even weapon design, but like, I don't really do that kind of stuff. <laughs> so it covers oh. a lot of areas. It's literally everywhere. So yes, in short, we study the mechanics of squishy stuff and, and people study very different aspects of it as well. So for example, some people work on uh, liquid liquid phase separation interfaces, polymers. So like plastics, rubber, um, the mechanics of thin film um, polymer, and hydrogels, for example, that that's what I do. Um, so hydrogels are very hydrophilic polymer clusters. Yeah. So um, basically, if you have a dry bead of polymer, and if you're hydrogel, if you put it in water, it will grow very large. So its volume can increase to like 2000%. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so it is pretty amazing. And there are a lot that we don't understand about these complex materials because they are viscoelastic. That yeah. is somewhere in between solid and liquid. So mm. their their behavior varies a lot, and people are trying to understand it using different technologies from like different micro microscopy methods and rheology too. That is the flow, the study of flow of matter. So yeah, it, it covers a lot of different interesting stuff. Does this, I know this is probably maybe a really tough question to start out with, and I'm sorry about this, but I'm I'm curious, does this, like, does some of this matter fall along with more like a chaotic system rather than something that can be replicated? Because I feel like chaos theory really is like <laughs> intertwined into soft yeah. matter physics. That is a very great question. And so I'm an experimentalist. I don't do any theory work right now, but uh, there are a lot of people in soft matter that actually do nonlinear uh, modeling. So that would fall under the chaos uh, that you, you just mentioned. Yeah. But um, for nonlinear statistical physics, when you study like flocking motion, for example, oh, flocculation. Um, have yeah. so if you have like a you know a group of birds and bacteria for example or colloids and you you know you study their mechanics and for theory people they're trying to model their um their behavior that would be where the nonlinearity is that a word nonlinearity <laughs> comes into play nonlinearity uh, yeah, yeah. Linearity. <laughs> As good. you can see, not a theorist. 
Oh, you're good. So there's two things that I want to define really quick for for the people. Um, so whenever she talked about viscoelasticity, uh, we're talking about like so soft matter is just anything that deforms heavily whenever there's energy put into the system. Not even where I just touch it and it's squishy and it like moves. It's also like if I were to run an electric field or a magnetic field beside it, something that's electro, you know, electromagnetism will will deform these shapes. Uh, thermal, you know, mechanical energy, any type of energy will will greatly deform these shapes. And most of the times it's like an elastic behavior, but sometimes it's also inelastic. But like we just call it viscoelasticity instead of viscoinelasticity. That word just doesn't exist and it doesn't sound that great. Viscoelasticity sounds better. But yeah, there was that. And then hydrophilic and hydrophobic, two different things. Hydrophobic is where you hate water. Hydrophilic, you love water. So that's why it, it takes, it sucks it in and it just blows up at 200%. 200? Did you say 200 or 2,000? 2,000. Oh, wow. That's okay. That's even better. It <laughs> can contain like up to 99% water. That's Whoa. how water loving they are. That's why hydrogels are so applicable when it comes to, you know, contact lenses, for example. I don't know if you wear contact lenses, but mm -mm. they're dry. I mean, your your eyes are dry too. And you don't, you know, you feel weird and all that. We don't want that happening. So, <laughs> yeah. So these hydrogels, right? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to imagine other than contact lenses, how, like, where would you need something that would puff out 2000% its original volume? Like it, it baffles me. So there are actually lots of examples of common hydrogels that you're, you might be familiar with. I don't know if you like boba tea, Ooh. like the boba balls. Those are tapioca balls. Those are actually hydrogels. Wow. Okay. When you boil them, they grow. Not by a, lot, by a little bit, but it's not the part where it grows by a large fraction of its volume that really matters is the fact that it has great water retainability that really matters because it contains a lot of water right so for example if you need like a artificial tissue in your body then it would be a perfect candidate because it can be designed to be biocompatible to your to human body condition while maintaining the ph value or the the amount of water that it needs to survive in human body condition, like that also matters. So um, yeah, it's it's not the fact that it grows by a lot that really matters. It's the fact that it can be designed to have so many features and, you know, contain a lot of water and they can also self-heal. Oh, so wow. break them and if you design them in certain ways, like there are ways to make them heal themselves when you, you know, break the bonds. So that's also super applicable. Okay. So they break apart locally and then you just add energy to the system and they could possibly reform. It, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like random, but if you did add energy enough into like the right orientation, it would, it could definitely do that. Yeah. There are different ways that you can design, you know, a common example will be agar hadadols. So um, you can actually eat them <laughs> from like, they're derived from seaweed or something, algae. Um, oh. Basically, and uh, those hydrogels, once they're formed, they're like they're like jelly or jello-ish texture. But and if you break them, however you break them, you just raise the temperature and then cool it down. It will reform again to its original state. Wow. 
I have so many, like, I have thousands of things racing through my mind right, right now. And, and, you know, whenever you think about soft matter, you, you just think it's like these, you know, set number of, of materials. Like it's not like, a, it, it sounds like it's <laughs> like, there's so much involved here. It's not just like, uh, like 10 things. It's like, there are a lot going on. I mean, like, yeah. usually chemists do the designing part and when it comes to us physicists, we're just trying to understand its mechanics. So yeah. you know, in a lab, I wouldn't have to design a certain type of hydrogel for a certain application, but my job would just be actually study its mechanics in certain conditions. Okay. So I'll ask you this because I saw this randomly and maybe you could give a better explanation than I could. There's some people out there trying to research how they can make energy through using soft matter. Is that something that's scalable? Like, I, I don't know if that's scalable or not. I'm curious. I really am. Could you elaborate on like, how would they? Like just through my, my surface level, you know, research of getting ready for this podcast, there was some people that were taking advantage of the mechanical work of, of soft matter materials and yeah. being able to have an energy output. It made me kind of think of like piezoelectrics, but piezoelectrics is something that's, you know, considered coming from like a hard matter material. That's probably a terrible yeah. way to say that. But like, you know, think of like quartz crystals, like when you add mechanical energy by like rubbing them together from friction or just like compressing mm -hmm. it, you get an electrical impulse. I don't know if that's applicable in soft matter. Uh, I'm not sure, but like I saw it and I was like trying to make sense of it. Yeah. it wasn't clicking. I didn't know if you've ever heard of anything. <laughs> Super <laughs> interesting. I've never heard of it actually. And, and I'm kind of surprised because at least from all the soft matter systems that I know of, I wouldn't. Yeah, I can't really. I have to look more into this to have my actual opinions formed. Yeah. But, that is something kind of surprising to me. Like, yeah, just because I, I just can't really imagine how you would harvest energy from a soft matter system. Like, what would you, would you de deform the system in some way? Or would you like, I mean, how would you perturb the system? So that's, that's my biggest question. Like, yeah. I think it's nothing scalable. Like if you think about like, when we think about energy output, we're thinking about what's powering like the computer right now. I don't think it's that. I think that's more of a nanotechnology kind of a question. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't think it has anything to do with like powering homes. I don't think you're going to build an array <laughs> soft matter. <laughs> and then maybe, it's just like. Maybe feral fluids can do that. Explain what's feral fluid. So they're kind of like magnetic. They're, they're really interesting, weird looking fluids. So they move around like fluids. But okay. let me see if I can pull, pull a picture on my phone. So imagine this. This is an example of ferrofluid. Whoa. And they are magnetic and they're fluids. But they look like solids. Wow, so, that's pretty cool. Okay, so yeah. I, I just quickly looked it up and it said a ferrofluid is a liquid that is attracted to the poles of a magnet. It is a colloidal liquid made of nanoscale ferromagnetic or ferromagnetic particles suspended in a carrier fluid. So I, I guess the ferromagnetic particles could be anything that's ferromagnetic on the on the periodic yeah. table, right? And it's just suspended on what type of fluid? Could it just be water? I mean, I don't know. Uh, it says it's, it has colloids. So colloids are basically like big particles. Think of, so a lot of people actually use colloids as models to um, atoms. 
because oh. they're just basically like micron or nano size beads. Okay. Yeah. So I think from what it sounds like, I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not an expert when it comes to ferrofluids, but it does sound like it's the colloids that will contribute to the magnetic part of it. Okay. So the colloids would be suspended in water or some, so some sort of solvent though. Oh, and it's okay. I see. I see now. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it looks really interesting. Like a lot of this looks really interesting. So, okay, well, we've talked about like different applications and, you know, what constitutes as soft matter, but what, what do you work on? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> and as I mentioned before on hydrogels, I actually study hydrogels. The hydrogel oh. that I study, I don't have it with me right now, uh -huh. but um, yeah, it's really sad, but I study hydrodels and their behavior when they're deformed. So that's a very general statement, I know, but their behavior actually is very interesting. So, um, I, for example, when you compress a hydrodel, um, when you mm -hmm. compress it at a, like holding like the size, the, the gap size, there's a, there's a gap when you compress it, holding yeah. the gap size the same. Normally, you would, you know, expect the force to just decay, the normal force to decay, because okay. it's a viscoelastic material, right? It's not just yeah. going to, it's going to relax. That's what we call it. It's going to relax. Yeah. However, this kind of behavior we found from some of our current experiments, we found that evaporation of the environment actually really matters. Because as you typically would imagine, when you have a hydrogel, right, it contains water already. Mm. So what would affect this behavior? Probably evaporation, but how much does evaporation really matters, right? That kind of question is very important when it comes to applications of hydrogel to understand how the, the environment would impact the hydrogel's behavior. Also... Yeah friction of hydrogel. So we would measure the friction when we slide the hydrogel. Turns out the hydrogel's compression history would potentially impact hydrogel's friction when sliding. Oh, yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. You're adding yeah. heat to the system. Some, it's evaporating. Oh, and then, and obviously, yeah, and it depends on the environment that you're in. If you're well, in a hotter environment, obviously, you're going to get evaporation. Well, but even when ev evaporation is controlled, the compression history matters. So like when we start sliding hydrodels, when we start um, just like loading them onto a plate versus after we compress them for, you know, 15 hours can be quite different even when evaporation is controlled. So we are just playing around um, and trying to figure out what's important. And there are lots of questions that we're trying to answer in my lab when it comes to hydrodels. For example, trying to uh, investigate the connectivity, the connectivity, <laughs> connectivity. Here we go. The con yeah. connectivity of the network, because after all, hydrogel is. You can think of it as a grid or network that is immersed in a fluid, right? Mm -hmm. So the connectivity of this network actually impact hydrogel's behavior when they're sliding. Yeah. So when they're sliding on uh, an instrument such as the rheometer. Sometimes we would observe this pointing effect. And if you're not familiar with what the pointing effect is, it's, it refers to when you're shearing or sliding a material, it expands or contract 
normal to the sliding, the direction of sliding. And yeah. that is um, very surprising. And so in biopolymer gels, um, people have found before that they contract. Okay. Yeah. And that is something we would like to explore further in our lab. Way over my head. It has a, lo um, a lot of attraction lately, hydrogel, because, you know, there are just so many applications when it comes to hydrogels and it's very interesting, but there are also a lot of questions that we're trying to ask here because intuitively you're like, oh, it's just a slab of something and, you know, introductory physics can solve pretty much all the problems and turns out that's not the case. No, that's for sure. Classical physics it feels like everything's more macroscopic than micro microscopic still like like we talked about chaos theory or i just name dropped chaos theory earlier like uh, <laughs> once you start getting really small things do not behave the way you think they will you know okay. just because you can't taste touch smell something whatever yeah doesn't mean it's going to behave the way you think it is you know yeah. it's 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 extremely tough to do when you have a network system that uh, when you have a system like hydrogel it's you know you you have a network with fluid flowing through the network that is m not even micron size they're nano sized grid network it's very complex you have different pressure that's going on and things can get really complicated yeah so are any of these materials within the hydrogel now um feral where you can pass like electromagnetism through it to be able to like point it in a certain direction n like locally within the fluid or is this just almost pure randomness so that's very interesting i haven't really thought about combining ferro fluid and hydrogels together but i would think you could so the, the problem is colloids are usually they're nanometers in size mm -hmm or hundreds of nanometers in size. But the pores of hydrogels, I mean, you, you, you can engineer it, but at least in my experiment, they are like 60 nanometers in size. I don't know if they can fit, like if they are free to flow around as mm. much, they're cured inside of, you know, a gel. I think that's more of a technical problem. Like, I think theoretically you could design like a ferro hydrogel that would be super cool if you design the pore size to be large enough for colloids to, you know, flow around. That would be pretty interesting. And the applications of trying to, like, you know, help people in the health industry with soft matter. There's uh, the opportunities are really endless. I, I don't I don't want to even go into the the weeds of things because I feel like we could talk about it for, for pretty much hours. You could do that with any, like any of the subjects that we cover in these yeah. episodes. Check back in like 50 years when you need like a knee replacement or something. <laughs> I'm sure hydrogels can help. Michelle's got you. That's what she's saying. She's got you. <laughs> so you're saying that like with all these applications, you feel like the field is expanding and there's more like job opportunities, research opportunities being put forth. We'll see how the economy goes, <laughs> but that's fair. I mean, but I, I think so. I think they're definitely growing attention when it comes to soft matter physics. Because when you do research, when you have background in soft matter physics, usually you gain a lot of other skills. Like for me, I have experience in different microscopy methods, like you, you know, using different types of microscope, coding, yeah. 
um, using Rheometer. Um, those are skills that the industry are looking for. And, you know, it, it matters. It gives you a lot of different job opportunity, even if you don't want to keep doing research in soft matter. It definitely does have a lot of job opportunities surrounding the soft matter physics area. That's good. So random, maybe stupid pop culture question, just to just to get off of all the the physics-y material science stuff that we've been talking about. So, you know, you working with microscopy, what's the nicest uh, microscope you've worked with so far? What's the most expensive and nicest one? Okay, I don't know the price of the microscopes, but- That's when you know it's good. <laughs> um, there are two things I can think of. I think the first one was when I was an undergrad, I was working back in University of San Diego um, in my lab and someone who trained me on the microscope was like, don't break this lens. It was this, this objective lens because mm. apparently it costs like $8,000 for that one single objective lens. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I guess I won't. But I was like shaking the entire time because before I was like, oh, you know, it's fine. And now I'm just like, it's not fine. And then the second candidate, definitely AFM, atomic force microscope. Um, Ooh. So yeah, there's one in, that I, I was trained on um, in our in one of our labs in our department, but it's not my lab. From what I've heard, you can buy a house with that money. Um, <laughs> half a million, I think. So around that range, we also live in Georgia. So I, I don't know how the housing market is doing right now, but all I know for sure is I can definitely buy a house with that microscope. Oh, so. For sure. <laughs> for sure. We also home build some jungle microscopes. So like there's also that. So it ranges from jungle microscopes to house microscopes. <laughs> that's pretty cool. I so I, I took an optics class whenever I was studying physics, and that's what we got yeah. to do. We got to build a microscope over the course of a semester for different things that we were trying to to see. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Honestly, if I would have kept going with physics, I think I would have done something optical. You're in Arizona, right? Uh, I think at University of Arizona, they have a like amazing optics program in like optical science. Yeah. You know what the problem is with me is that I just find a lot of things fascinating. <laughs> so, it's hard, <laughs> so it's hard to like pick a, a somewhere where I want to go for a master's or PhD course. Uh, it's been, it's been my plague. Yeah. yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Don't, don't even get me started on selecting a school <laughs> to apply to. Well, good thing that we're teasing it because whenever we come back from this segment, we're going to talk about PhD programs. So stick around and find out. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, 
It's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. Cbar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. Okay, <laughs> and we're back here for segment two. We're done with soft batter, actually, so you can rest your brain. <laughs> you know, your brain doesn't have to hurt anymore. We're done talking about material science and physics and electromagnetism and colloids and, and scales of size. We're going to talk more about the PhD program track, but I really want to start like at the at the base level and just ask Michelle why you got into physics, because, you know, that's not really a, a program track that a lot of people think about, you know, going into college. They're you know, it's either you really love physics or like, you know, you just kind of fall into it from like a general education course or a general requirement. So what's your story? My parents actually were really confused at, at first too. They're like, why, why did you choose physics? Doesn't make sense. <laughs> I was like, well, it makes sense to me. Um, it, it's a long story and it has multiple parts, but it all started <laughs> when I was uh, four or five, my mom just randomly talked about black holes one day. And, you know, as a normal four or five year old, I was like, what, what is that? That is scary. So I started reading like all the books that with a lot of pictures, like pretty pictures of space, mm -hmm. you know, that was like, this is so cool. But so I wanted to be an astronaut at first and physics was not really on the, you know, it's not really in my head until don't laugh. Okay. This is going to be really embarrassing, but no, you're I, good middle school rolled around i was 11 i think at the time and i i had a huge crush on this boy in my class and it was really embarrassing because like he held my hands like one time and i was obsessed with him i was like i like him so much like i i want to impress you and you know like he just did not entertain that at all he was not into it and then from his friend, I, I knew that he was into physics or sci-fi. And my little 11-year-old brain, I was like, I'm going to study physics to impress him. And so I went and started reading books. I was like, what can I impress him? Quantum. It was too wow. far for me. So I, I read the first page of Feynman's lecture. <laughs> I was like, what, what did I sign myself up? Like, what, what did I, what did I do? And I was like, this is interesting, but I don't understand anything. So I went back. So I started with the very introductory stuff and I was like, this is fun. In retrospect, I think I was just really desperate. <laughs> but the more I looked into physics, the more I was like, this is actually super interesting. And, you know, I want to do this long-term and I just, Ever since then, I just became really passionate about physics. I took physics in high school. I did IB physics all couple, three years, two years. And in college, uh, I started doing research in physics, like literally the first semester of uh, yes. freshman year. And I just, I was like, this is, this is so fun. Like I enjoy being in lab. I wanted to do astral physics first because, you know, stars, mm -hmm. but then the professor was like, well, you have to take intro physics first or finishing them. And I was like, I'm not gonna wait that long. I'm gonna start something like experimental first. <laughs> and I fell in love with it. So um, I decided to do PhD in physics after college because I'm, research is something I'm really passionate about. 
So yeah, that's my my story. <laughs> that's a that's a different story. I've I've never heard that one yet. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it's out there. You know, not not saying that you know you're a, the lone wolf, but yeah, that's a new one for me. I mine was a lot. I guess a lot simpler than that. Uh, yeah. I was taking anatomy and physiology, and I was like, I also want to take physics. I wanted to challenge myself my senior year of high school, mm-hmm. uh, and I was at the time I was playing first chair uh, jazz trumpet. Nice. And yeah, and we went over sound and the Doppler effect, and I was mm-hmm. like, I was like, this shit's pretty cool. Like I was nice. like, yeah, I was interested, and um, I had a I had a good teacher at the time, and we talked about physics and. I ultimately just decided to stay away from the health track. I was going to go into the health field and I'm like, let's try physics. And I was into physics. I, I have a degree in it, but um, I did a, a, a dual degree and also went for engineering because I just loved mathematics. And I, I don't know, I just could never make up my mind, but it's all cool. <laughs> yeah. So my, mine's not, mine's more indecisive, but um, yeah, it was just playing music. There's yeah. so many connections between music and physics and more than people realize. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Oops. But okay. <laughs> Sounds good. So I guess uh, my next question for you is like, what, like, what advice do you have? I know you were talking about, you know, selecting a PhD program. So what advice do you have for actually doing that? Cause it's pretty, it's pretty darn hard from like my perspective. I'm, having a tough time myself deciding if I want to do PhD or a master's or research or something that's more applied. I don't know. So what, what, what do you have? I would say if you're passionate about research or if you're into, um, you know, if you're trying to become a professor, PhD is definitely what you're trying to do for a lot of industry jobs nowadays. I don't know how competitive it is, but with, the way the direction the economy is going, it doesn't look that hot. (laughs) And being in a PhD program, I always recommend that over a master program, at least from my perspective, is because, so first of all, you get paid um, most of the time because, you know, you're working as a research scientist. You don't have to, the tuition is usually covered, unlike in most master programs. And you get more research experience in a phd program so mm-hmm. if that information like you know will help you the, well knowing what you are trying to do in the future and plan accordingly but also to select a certain phd program to join there are so many factors to consider what you should not consider is how big of a name a school is because first of all like i always recommend go to where you would enjoy being in the next, you know, at least five or six years of your life. Yeah. If you're a city girl, you probably don't want to go to like, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Also lab, really important. Choosing a lab that you want to work with, that is super important. Always look over the faculty list and a list of research that they do, because that's going to be the choosing range. Once you're accepted, you're trying to find a lab, right? Like, and I always recommend you, if you see someone that you really want to work with, email them. Yeah. Do not be afraid to reach out. Like I reached out to probably like more than 10 professors when I wasn't like before I even submitted my application and I got to talk to them, like, you know, having email 
exchanges with them and it's a great experience mm-hmm. and select the program based on you know who you want to work with and i think there is a website that out there that is also super useful it's called like grad school shopper so if you're looking for a physics program i think that's only for physics though so it will give you like all the options of the program physics program that um universities offer their like application uh admission uh rate and like how much does it cost how many how many students they admit and all the other information and i think it's called gradschoolshopper.com okay I'll throw that in the description. So whoever's yeah. watching, listening, whatever, they can yeah. get their hands on it. That helped me a lot. So choose programs mm-hmm. based on, you know, uh, the general culture of the area, professors, their research area, what you want to do, think about, like, you know, just think about, picture if you can be there in the next five or six years, because it's a very long time. And there's stipend. Y- yeah, that too, <laughs> of course, because, you know, <laughs> so one thing I, I did get a piece of advice uh, from somebody and they said, I'm not name dropping or anything or, or program wise, but one thing that you should look into is if you are emailing the professor that you want to work with and you like their research, make sure that they still have that grant money because yeah. as soon as they don't have the grant money, they're leaving, you know, cause that's how it's really competitive. Like PhD programs are super competitive and the money's not always there. So, it ends up that like the professors will jump ship and go to another college and you need to talk to them on like, what's your timeline? Like how long are you going to be around? Is there money for us to be able to do this? And I've met people that have done that, like that haven't done that, had that conversation and they show up and then like a year in the professors piecing out and then they have to follow them or do something else. What I wrote in my emails were like, are you looking for um, more graduate students in your lab, like what's the yes. current lab culture. And also if you can talk or get in contact with students from those schools, talk to oh, them because yeah. they, they can give you very different insights from what's available on the website because they're, you mm. know, the culture of each institution can vary a lot too. Oh, for sure. I know this sounds like a lot of homework to assign to somebody, but like, I would say talk to more than one, one person that, cause you know, not everybody experiences a program the same way. So just yeah. getting as much or much data that you can throw together about some, some place is going to make you, I guess, have a better informed decision. So definitely talk to as many people as you can uh, between the professor and then also the people who are, you know, in the program itself. Because they're going to give you the cookie cutter. Come here. You know, like if you do like the website, come here, you know, it's awesome. And, you know, we'll pay you and this exists. And sometimes you just need the real answer. Find someone to spill the tea. (laughs) Yes. Spill, spill the tea. So we talked about just the process of selection, you know, what you should do to get the program that you really want. But how about the application process? Because I'm sure that's, pretty intensive yeah it requires a lot of planning so i think what i did was uh usually for stem phd programs the application due date is around like i would say november to january that kind of period Mm -hmm. and uh you should start planning the summer of that year so like if you're applying around like november you should start planning around like june july august ish 
first step is to always just research the schools. I know there's a ton of like programs out there, but just generally get to know, like, you know, have a list, make a list of all the schools you're applying to, their due date of application, yep. application fee. Sometimes you can go get those fees waived too. So like, don't be afraid to like ask for that when you apply to a certain program. And so that's the first step. And also, like I said before, like if you see someone that you're really interested, you know, and in working with, like reaching out to them um, in summer, send them your CV, ask them if they're looking for more students. Um, and then we come to the GRE stages. So register for your GREs. I don't know if they're still required, but GREs, a lot of programs now don't require GRE or GRE yeah. visit because, you know, there are a lot of issues, but we're, we're, we don't have to get into that. But there, there have been discussions about like whether or not physics GRE it really matters. But yeah. if applying to physics programs, sometimes they would ask for your physics GRE. And don't be afraid. This is, uh, <laughs> it really doesn't matter that much. I mean, at least my two cents, like if, if a program, values the, your physics GRE score too much, you probably don't want to go there anyway. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of things at play. It yeah. shouldn't just be heavy on a one test. Exactly, exactly. Especially like, I don't think it's fair because when I took my physics GRE, the way my program was structured in undergrad, like I did not take ENM, like the upper division ENM. I didn't, I was in the middle of classical mechanics I was in the middle of, uh, I think, uh, Statmec as well. So I had to self-teach a lot of stuff. And that is unfair compared to people who, you know, already have a master's taking it. But yeah, there are other things to talk about. But what really is important when it comes to application um, to PhD program is your personal statement to talk about your passion when it comes to mm -hmm. research, why you want to go to a program. This is the time where you actually you're trying to convince them why you are an asset why they should hire you it's kind of like hey i'm valuable i'm passionate about science i can i can do science let me prove it to you and and um don't be afraid to name drop people to be like i want to work with this person this person this person so they they can see you know you actually did your research into their schools you're not just like shooting your shot at every <laughs> every uh program yeah no it makes sense and you know i was thinking like don't don't make it like the the cookie cutter statement where you're like <laughs> oh i've always had a passion for science and i would say name dropping people and talking about specifics is way more important than giving a generalized statement that you just have a love and passion for something like of course you have a love and passion for something you're applying for a freaking phd in it like why else would you be here like give me some names give me some things that you want to work on stuff that you want to achieve give me your goals you know do you want to be the next such and such theoretical physicist of blah application? That's what I want to hear. And um, if, you, if you have like research experience, talk about that because that's what grad schools are looking for, right? You're, they're trying to hire you as a research scientist. So if you yeah. have your research experience, talk about them. And 
if you have the opportunity, I know not everyone has the opportunity to go to conferences, but if you go to conferences as an undergrad, like talk to professors. Yeah. Maybe they're hiring someone. Make those connections. And, it, you know, just because you're applying to grad schools, it doesn't mean you, you need to stop <laughs> making connections or not to make connections. In fact, like I met my current PI at a conference when I was in undergrad. So utilize all of your resources, utilize all of your opportunities and talk about those on your personal statement. That will help you a lot. Yeah. Keeping it, keeping it professional and networking, you know, but like, you know, whenever you go to the conferences, like obviously you're there to network, but then also just try to be yourself, you know, like they, they know like what your goal is, but like, you know, they, they also, you know, if, if you want to work with them in the future, like they want to know who you are as well, not just what you're trying to achieve. So, uh, maybe 80, 20, like, you know, it's a professional process, obviously, like you are going to work, but like, you know, try to be yourself as well. Yeah. When I first met my, uh, advisor PI right now <laughs> at a conference, I did not cuss at all. I was like trying to be professional. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I got admitted to the program. I'm like, okay, time to <laughs> unleash the real Michelle. <laughs> Un unleash the beast. <laughs> yeah. yeah I you, you definitely want to keep it professional and be yourself. Like you can't just be a machine, right? You want a program to get to know you. You want to make an impression that is memorable and is also good. 100%. We're talking about <laughs> applications, right? So embedded in applications uh, is also the requirements, right? You know, you need yeah. to make sure that you're meeting the needs of the program. So yeah. what kind of requirements would an applicant be looking at? As in to apply for programs? Yeah, like, yeah. So we talked about like the, the GRE. Yeah, yeah right. Like, the GRE. The GRE. Mm -hmm. So GRE can be a huge factor. I mean, like there some schools have a minimum GRE you're trying to meet, but sometimes it's like not a hard thing. Yeah. Your personal statements as yes. And I always think that if you have the more research experience you have the better candidate you are. If you mm -hmm. have published papers, that will help a lot. I think, yeah, I had two papers applying, uh, first author applying to uh, grad school. Um, conference experience is always good. Basically, whatever that makes your CV, the longer, the better. <laughs> yeah. um, TA experience are mm -hmm. often super important too. Mm -hmm. um, depends on you know, your school's requirement, if your school has a TA requirement as a grad student, if you already have previous TA experience, that will help you a lot. GPA, I find it is a moderate kind of factor. Like, obviously, it can't be like one, but like, it doesn't have to be like 4.0, you know? <laughs> yeah. I didn't have 4.0. I had like, I don't know, I, I suck at history and anything related to social science. And that really dropped my GPA down. It's okay. I mean, GPA doesn't mean everything, you know? No. Um, and yeah. And sometimes like if you talk about if there's like one semester that, you know, you are not doing well, that's totally fine. And you can yeah. talk about that in your application. Be like, hey, I was like, you know, battling with like, for example, mental health. Yeah. And, you know, I... Uh, I'm working on it and I've learned lessons and stuff like those are your story to tell like and you know your personal experience just makes you unique and one tip I 
really want to like give to people who are looking into applying to physical uh, or grad schools in general is that if a school rejects you it is not an invalidation to you as a person or a scholar at all mm-hmm. there are so many reasons that they might reject you they might run out of fundings for that year they might you know just the professor looking to work with they're, they're not looking for any students mm-hmm. it's not a rejection of your character at all so don't take it personally and i know it's hard because you know i i got rejected by so many programs got accepted to a few but you know a lot of rejections too and it's okay it, it, at the end of the day it is okay i agree on a less personal note uh, one thing that I do also want to stress is letters of recommendation. Uh, oh, that's yeah. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. You're good. Uh, I know letters; those are important. You know, yeah. Getting make sure you ask the right professors. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're applying, you definitely have had some professors that have been there for you and have inspired you to, to do yeah. things and and can uh, maybe even choose the path that you're on. So, like having like ask the professors that have a personal connection to you. Don't just ask the head of the department because they're the head of the department, you know, cause a lot of their stuff doesn't like, they're not going to say meaningful things like to the level that you would, you would expect. Yeah. I, I mean like, and also, so I think when it comes to, uh, usually you have three choices for a letter of recommendations or you can work with that however you want, but you're totally right. You're totally right. You have to, you know, choose someone who's at least have, some un- personal understanding to you so for example your pi and undergrad or some something like that but also mm-hmm. uh, there's <laughs> if you want to go into a certain direction for example if you're dead set on going to condensed matter physics for example mm-hmm. and if you have someone in your department that specializes in that area that could help too because whoever you're applying it to when they the committee received the letter sometimes they review the applications by certain like areas of physics and they might you know recognize the name yeah i take back my qt statement you know if yeah. you want to go with one personal and two that are that are focused go for it it's, it's your application um, but definitely uh, big emphasis on the letters of recommendation oh you could even do some base level research and just you know where you're applying to look at the try to draw connections um use networking if someone knows your professor and they're at the college of which you're trying to go to, you know, connect those dots. Maybe you don't know that professor too well, but you can definitely get to know them in a short period of time. Be like, I want to go here. No, that's a great advice. Yeah. And I actually did that. I don't want to, I don't want to like disappoint people. It didn't work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, but also it might be because it was Harvard. So take that with a grain of salt. Like my undergrad PI, he went, he, he went to Harvard and um, and I was like, oh, your lab sounds cool. So like, you know, he was on all the stuff that I applied to Harvard and I name dropped mm-hmm. his guy. I was like, I want to work with blank rejection. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, it was really sad. <laughs> it's Harvard. You you, sh- you shot, you're shot and it happens. We'll um, see for postdoc though. <laughs> you got this. They, they might see that second application and be like, all right. It would I be a third because I, I applied there for undergrad too. I didn't get it. Okay. So third time is the charm. They they see that you're dedicated. 
just to just to finish out this segment, I wanted to talk to you about your program. Maybe you can yeah. give, you know, a little bit about your story or just just about the program that you're in right now. I know we did get to talk about what you're doing, but you know, if you wanted to elaborate more on the program itself. Yeah, no, that's perfect. So yeah, I go to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, right now, as you probably ought to gather, I'm getting my PhD in physics. And I work, uh, I do research in soft condensed matter physics or soft matter physics um, experiments. For my program, you have a certain amount of classes that you have to take. Usually you take those the first two years. So very basic, like uh, classical ENM. StatMac and the fun stuff. And plus you have to take some uh, electives as well. So um, for me, I did continual mechanics and soft matter because I do research in that area and mm-hmm. mathematical, that's what I'm taking next semester. And you have to TA for three semesters. So um, for me, I did three semesters of intro labs to undergrads. Nice. I loved teaching. Like it was super fun. Like I still keep in contact with some of my students and um, I enjoy teaching just because it's so rewarding. And I've been there, I've struggled. And I think a lot of students when they struggle, especially with physics, it's such like an intimidating subject, you know, and people are scared. I was scared. And I thought, you know, um, a lot of students need someone to be like, hey, it's okay to struggle. Like, I've been there too. It's totally okay. And yeah, besides teaching classes, um, you also have to pass a qualifier at the end of your second sem- uh, second year of grad school. But basically, you're trying to come up with an experiment that has never done before and write a grant proposal about it. That mm-hmm. is, like, I wrote mine, like, 48 pages long. And you have to defend it in front of a committee of four professors for like total about like within two hours. Um, they basically just ask you questions. You were supposed to give like a presentation that's like 40, 30 minute long. And it, yeah, it was really scary. Um, but like we, we did it. It was, it was not bad. It was like, you know, just a short, I think it's like a shorter version of dissertation, except you haven't done experiments yet. Mm. I actually prefer it over like qualifiers that are written tests Mm, yeah yeah because um for me like i think research skills are super important and process like this require you to go beyond yourself to um actually be a scientific researcher you know you're not get fed on like a project by your pi you actually have to read all those papers, develop something by yourself, come up with something by yourself. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, were they asking for you to give questions that were, or answers that were extremely technical? Or were they looking for questions that were, okay, I'm going to pretend like I'm a six-year-old and you're going to give me an answer that I can understand. Did they do like any of that or was it just all technical? Yeah. I don't think technical is like a right fitting word for that per se, because mm-hmm. in my committee, I had people from the, I had theor- theory um, people. I had professors from other areas and it was, oh. they come from different perspectives. So the uh. questions asked can be technical, but there were 
like a mix of theoretical as well. It can be just like, you know, general, um, not like, oh, explain me this as if like I was six year old kind of sense, but it just, it comes in different shapes or forms, even questions as how would you know this would work or how would, what's the expected results for that? You know, or like what, what happens if, if this happens, like, what, what would you do if this happens or, you know, stuff, stuff like that too. But, but yeah, so in my program, qualifier is like a huge thing. And yeah, basically after that, I just do research. I think that's it. You say it's pretty much it, but it like encompasses most of your time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. Okay. Just, just so the person listening or watching knows, like, if you're not in a PhD program, that's, it's a full-time job like and some couldn't imagine right. the time that you would put in just to just to get ready to be not in a roast session but almost like just even the prep to get that stuff ready and then have to deal with the the questioning and, and explaining to people that aren't you know familiar with with your work it's a lot definitely so now we get to do all the cool scientific stuff yay <laughs> that's what's up so we talked about a lot, like in terms of the PhD program, hopefully uh, that really helps out the uh, whoever's, you know, tuning into this, but we're going to take a real quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about something way different. We're going to talk about work, work life balance and Michelle's music. So stick around. I have some exciting news. Everything steam and elite graphics have teamed up to create eco light apparel Ecolite Apparel has a direct focus on the environment with a sustainable approach to fashion. We came up with a way to combine fashion, sustainability, and education. Firstly, our apparel is sustainable because it takes advantage of organic materials with a blend of recycled materials to combat the waste of the fashion industry. So speaking of fashion, each Ecolite product has a significant environmental symbol such as reduce, reuse, recycle, planting trees, saving the bees, commercial fishing, and much more. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics are going above and beyond to provide you with more information about sustainability and environmentalism through the use of Ecolite. Each piece of our apparel will contain a scan QR code, and when you scan this QR code, it takes you to Everything Steam's research blog that is specifically about the symbol on the clothing that you purchased. So let's say you purchased our t-shirt with the symbol for planting trees. Your t-shirt will have a scan QR code that will take you directly to our plant a tree research blog where you can learn about the many benefits of trees, global deforestation, reforestation acts, and what you can do to make a difference. Last but certainly not least, with each purchase of Ecolite, we pledge to donate $2 to nonprofit organizations that are on the front lines of fighting for our ecosystem. We plan to target reforestation nonprofits and other organizations that fight over fishing, plastic pollution, air quality, and much more. To purchase Ecolite Apparel, head to the Elite Graphics website, elitegraphics.org, or make your way to our sponsors page on our website, everythingsteam.org. So, do yourself a favor and get yourself some Ecolite Apparel, the clothing line that combines fashion, sustainability, and learning. Ecolite, clothing done right. All right, so we're back for segment three. We're not talking about science unless we really, really want to, but we're going to talk about work-life balance, which is really important in science because, you know, people who do science are also people, right? Uh, so we definitely have to think about work-life balance. For me personally, like my work-life balance, like what I do 
is I try to get out in nature because work is stressful. Uh, studying is stressful. You do have love and passion for these things, but like, you know, it doesn't have to be your entire life, right? I don't know anybody that's in the sciences that just do science like 24 seven inside their, you know, apartments with like no lights on and, and they're just sitting in front of their computer and typing out code. Um, but uh, cooking, I love to cook. I've found myself reading a lot more. I never used to read. Now I read a lot. Just things that kind of calm the mind a little bit. So that's my work-life balance. Michelle, what do you do? I know, I know music is a big thing in your life. So maybe do you want to talk about that and explain your music yeah. career? Sure. I, I love to. But yeah, nature, great point. Everybody needs to go outside. If you're depressed, go outside. But yes, back to music and work-life balance. I, um, I'm a singer-songwriter, so when I'm not doing physics, I do a lot of music. I do a lot of songwriting and work on my songs, play some gigs here and there, live music gigs. Songwriting has been my passion since I wrote my first song when I was eight, so around <laughs> ever since then. It's been a long time. It's kind of like journaling to me because when I, I used to write diaries, but then I'm like, this, this is not enough. I need something that where I can scream it out, you know? So songwriting takes a perfect form. And I have had crush on a lot of boys and surprisingly, none of them like me back. So that inspired a lot of songs. Um, I write a lot of breakup songs because I've averaged like one breakup per year at this point in the past five years. <laughs> That sounds super sad, but the music that I get from out of it, like, honestly, it's pretty rewarding. I like that. Uh, yeah, it's like definitely um, physics has helped me a lot when it comes to recording, like, you know, placement of instruments when it comes to recording. Mm. Acoustics, that's a thing. But yeah, work-life balance, I think it's super important in general. Like, it doesn't matter what, you know, what you like to do as long as you still can have fun while being productive that's what matters you want to have fun right so what type of music do you create you know i know you said that you like to create music after breakups but do you <laughs> dabble in in different in, in different yeah. uh, structures like yeah no that's a good question um i mainly write like singer songwriter stuff so acoustic stuff um i've done opera before when I was in college, but not right now at the moment. Oh. Um, yeah, <laughs> thank you. It's just really fun, but it's not for me. In um, opera, what are, you, what are you regarded as, like in terms of your vocal vocalization? Oh yeah, I was a mezzo-soprano. Do you mind explaining that really quick? Yeah, so there's alto, which is like, I don't remember the exact range, but alto is like kind of lower-ish. Yeah. Um, and then there's soprano. Mezzo is kind of like between that range. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So Adele, she's a mezzo soprano. Oh, yes. Yeah. Good reference. That, <laughs> that really helps. <laughs> it's super fun because I really enjoy learning like acting side mm -hmm. of it. And um, a lot of opera pieces that I learned were in Italian. So I got to learn that too. That was super Ooh, fun. Nice. Yeah. Tell us like, what's the biggest gig you've done so far? I, so live 
music wise, I don't play as much as before. I actually just played like a gig last week. Um, I got invited to play this at this block party, <laughs> but I mainly do um, production and just like releasing music online on Spotify and different platforms. That's what I do mainly. Um, I think mm -hmm. one of my songs, it has like 12K strings, which is like, I'm really proud of. Cause like, it, it's like one of my favorite songs and I'm proud of anyway. But yeah, I can't think of like all the other gigs at the moment. Cause they were all like pre COVID and it, it's like a blur. I did like when I was in high school, I had like a concert. I was headlining a concert like locally in San Diego. Nice. That was super far away. That was like probably six or whatever years ago, seven years. Ago. I don't remember. Curious. So, like, if if somebody wanted to go listen to your music, can somebody just look up Michelle Wang on, yeah. on Spotify? Okay. Yeah, that's, if you funny. operated differently, like if you had like a solo name that was different from your yeah. own name. Yeah, okay. I also post like on my TikTok account. Um, I also post like cover or original from time to time for fun. Besides my usual scientific communication, grad school content. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, like I'm uh, this summer. I'm releasing two more songs because breakups. Yay, it happens. <laughs> Michelle is Taylor Swift 2.0. Uh, just saying. <laughs> but it's exciting. Let's let's put it this way. I don't want to reveal too much. Like I'm gonna do some previews and stuff on my TikTok account, but. It's super exciting because I got to work with some really amazing producers. One of the producers I worked with, he actually worked on Ariana Grande's Widner album. Ooh. So that was super exciting. Wow. Um, and it's, it's a privilege to record with him. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely be looking forward to that. And uh, I'll, I'll try to share it on, I know my social media stuff isn't that sexy yet, but I'll definitely share oh, yes. it. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean... So I'm kind of curious, and of course, this is a scientific question. So whenever you're, whenever you're playing music, do you ever just sit back and think like, I'm just sending vibrations out there and yeah. people are just intaking these vibrations and they're reacting to it chemically in, in different ways. Like they're loving it, they're hating it, they're entranced by it, you know, like they just react to it in different ways. Do you ever just sit back and think like, it's so weird that like vibrations in air, you know, sound is, is making people feel like that. I, okay. So I don't think in terms of vibrations, cause I, I, I was like, <laughs> whatever I think about vibrations, I, I think about the other side of TikTok <laughs> and it rubs me sometimes in the wrong way. <laughs> oh, like the, the ASMR shit that you no hear? no the spiritual people oh, were like, oh, 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 oh you're sending a different vibration and i was like what is vibrating man no but i i think i i do think it's really fascinating like i'm carrying out like sound waves yeah. and through air mm -hmm. you know people are re you're right people are rea reacting to it like chemically stuff happened in their brain they're processing it and that is what really just makes me feel rewarding as an artist because if i could make people feel a certain way produce serotonin or you know cry with me i try not to cry in my gigs i haven't which is nice but it is huge because you know music is powerful and yeah. i'm sure 
one of the biggest motivation for me to share my music to the world or with the world is that people are going through similar experiences with me all the time. And for people who are going through the same thing, it's nice for them to know, at least, I mean, it would be nice for me to know as well, like, you know, someone else is going through the same thing and finding out music that speak to them, that they can relate to, that they find therapeutic. And that does give me like a sense of purpose with my own music. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the correlation of, yeah, you you know, you have your, you're in your PhD program for physics, but, you know, you also experience the same everyday life stuff as, as, um, as others. And you're just in your downtime, you're communicating that to other people to like, to make a bridge, which is pretty cool, you know, cause you're a person, I'm an engineer, I'm a person, others, uh, you know, the, the salesman would have the same experience, the, the waitress, the, et cetera, everybody experiences that. And it's cool that, you know, you know, you choose to do that in your downtime. I really enjoy it. It's always nice to to know that we we're all at the end of the day we're all human. We have shared experiences, we have shared feelings that we can all relate to. For sure. Just to jump back really quick, your number one song that you like, what is it? Just to shout it out so people can yeah. listen to it. Um, yeah. So the name of it is um, "Out of Tears," out and of tears. I wrote it four years ago. It was inspired by um in a relationship where i felt i was objectified because unfortunately i found out that i was you know dating this guy who had asian fetish oh so and and i just felt like you know he did not like me for who i am he liked me because he just saw the asianness my ethnicity Mm. um, instead of seeing me as a person yeah but I genuinely just liked him for, you know, for who he was. So it, it was very hurtful. So I wrote this song out of tears because like I was crying a lot. I was like, ah, I'm out of tears. Do you ever like throw in uh, science into your music? Do you ever just like name drop some things? Yeah. For fun? Nice. Yeah, I did. I, did. I, I wrote this song and um, I talk about brownie emotions. Like we're of drifting course. apart like brownie emotions. <laughs> of course, of course. You wouldn't be a physicist if you, if you didn't include something like that in your songs. So yeah, I thought about like when I was studying for a GRE, I was thinking maybe I can write a song about all the topics, and then I was like, no, who, who who's gonna listen to it? Like, who's gonna listen to it? Two physicists <laughs> <laughs> that are also studying for the GRE. <laughs> That's Just, very sad. <laughs> well, I mean. I don't know if that would sell controversy sells and, and just relations like, you know, person to person, human relations sell pretty well. There are people that do rap like concepts in physics or concepts in like neuroscience and stuff, which is pretty sick, but you know, I'm a nerd. So I don't know if, if like the common person would be interested in that. (laughs) I mean, maybe if, if you do like, cool references like ones here and there like that got people to look it up like oh what does this mean like what does this reference mean and they look up like brownie emotion they're like oh my god that's so cool like that 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 would be fun and then you ease them into physics at Hmm. first get them used to it and then eventually you drop a song that is just all physics and they're like oh my god that is so cool i don't know maybe that's not how the general public (laughs) reacts 
Michelle's <laughs> just trying to create a physics a physics songwriting cult is what she's saying. She's trying that's, to manipulate you <laughs> to listening to her physics. That's my master plan all along. I'm down with that. I mean, it could be way worse. Could be trying to manipulate them to drink some bad Kool-Aid. That is dark. It's true. It that stuff has happened in the past. That is. Yeah. At least you're manipulating them to try to be smarter and enjoy reality around them. I, <laughs> I guess I want to close out now and and just say, you know, thanks for being on the show. This was awesome. Just to talk about some some really good core things, talking about what soft matter is, just so people kind of understand it like it's i guess an emerging or more it's it's gaining traction i guess is probably a good way in in uh, in the sciences in research and application also talking about the phd track how you can look into the application process what you should be looking for you know the requirements that's necessary etc and just and then also shouting out your music which is fun so i appreciate you being on the podcast talking about all these cool things it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you for having me here. I really enjoy talking to you. Well, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, take care and we'll uh, be in touch. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to all the audience out there. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to Michelle for sharing her knowledge, experience, and music with us. I recommend you follow her on TikTok and Instagram at Michelle Wang. But most importantly, check out her music on Spotify. Just give Michelle Wang a search and tune in. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make the show happen. This podcast was marketed by Courtney Page, QC by Panya Pit Erickson, and our episode art was created by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for some feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against the algorithms. Again, I really encourage you to sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter. The Monday before each episode, you get a preview of that episode and a sneak peek of what the next episode will be. And as a bonus, we'll include some information that we missed during the discussion. But most importantly, please reply to our newsletter with a question for the upcoming show. We will take one or two questions and answer them during the recording. And if you're lucky enough, we'll give you a name drop. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and just fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. And as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Cell Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.